I'm grateful to Don and Bonnie and the choir for that wonderful offering. Thank you. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. What a fun story. (laughs) I bet you didn't know you were going to hear that one today. That story is not in the lectionary. It's not in any selected text for the majority of preachers to preach. And now I'm wondering why I put it there. Last week, we talked about the ideal Christian community in Acts chapter 4 that truly lived life with open hands. The community had no need. They shared everything together. And Luke pointed to Barnabas as his example of this loving and encouraging generosity, he sold a field and gave gave it all to the disciples, all of it. And I believe he did it because it was just who he was to do something like that. And I, I believe that same kind of nature exists within us as well. But as Luke often does, he not only gives us an example of what to do in Barnabas, he also gives us an example of what not to do. And you know it's a negative example for the first, when, you, when you look at the first word of the sentence. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of their property. And you already know something isn't right. Ananias sells the property and with his wife's knowledge he keeps back some of the proceeds and brings only a part and lays it at the apostles' feet. What a contrast to Barnabas. A few sentences prior, this man sold his land, brought his offering in full, and I'm sure he brought it to the prayer meeting. I'm sure the early church community celebrated, and they thanked him. And in typical Barnabas fashion, he just shrugged it off. It's it's no big deal. Don't thank me. I mean, you know Barnabas. He's always just happy to help, doesn't want any of the thanks Barnabas. I love Barnabas. He's one of my favorite apostles. My dad used to tell me growing up that if my little sister Haley had been a boy, 
He really wanted to name the baby Barnabas after his favorite apostle, but mom said no, she didn't want to have Andy and Barney in the same family. Um, <laughs> Barnabas does a great thing, and it probably spurs others to do the same. I mean, you can almost picture it for a second, a small gathering of folks, envision it, maybe 30 or so packed into a small room. And some of the apostles, Peter included, are, are in the front leading the prayer meeting, and in walks Joseph, bringing a gift, and he lays it at their feet. Everybody celebrates and starts thanking him and celebrating him, and, and they say, we should call him Barnabas. After all, what an encouraging gift. He's always encouraging everybody. Let's, let's give him a nickname, Barnabas. And somewhere in the back of the room, two rather new Jesus followers, which is funny to say because everybody's a new Jesus follower at this point, Ananias and Sapphira, they see all this taking place. And they go home that evening discussing what happened at the prayer meeting. Sapphira says to her husband, I think we should sell that little lot of land we have down by the lake and give the money to these guys. I, it seems like they're doing a really good thing, and I like being a part of this community. And the reply from Ananias, well, sure, yeah, but we can't give it all. <laughs> That's just unrealistic. And Sapphira says, well, yeah, not all. <laughs> I wasn't saying that. So they continue, I imagine, to go to these prayer meetings one after another of these folks who follow a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And time after time, people continue to bring gifts and lay it at the front, at the feet of the apostles. And each time there's a celebration and singing, and I'm sure more nicknames are thrown out. A widow sells a lot of her stuff and moves in with a family member. She gives it all to the apostles, even though it's not much, and they give her the nickname Hannah. We'll call you Hannah because it means grace of God. And what you have done is a gracious gift. Another man in the prayer meeting one week this is, says this is unlike anything I've ever been a part of. So he starts budgeting his money and he has plenty to, to eat. His family is cared for and he starts giving a little bit each week. And the apostles give thanks to God for him and give him a name, Ezra. We'll call you Ezra because that means helper because his gift has been of such great help. And Ananias and Sapphira see all of this happening and they start getting excited. And one evening, Ananias comes home with the bill of sale. I finally found a buyer, he says. When we sold it, for more than we thought. Can you believe it? 30% above asking price. And Sapphira exclaims, and in this economy, and Ananias says, I know. I say we just give what we initially intended, and we'll keep a good chunk for ourselves. Nobody will know the difference. We'll just keep saying we were, we were going to do it all along. Surely these folks would understand. So they talk about it further, and it's decided. And that day, Ananias goes to the prayer meeting with his offering, but apparently in the exchange, Ananias and Sapphira are not celebrated. They're not thanked like the others. There are no new nicknames given to either of them. And at some point, Ananias makes it clear that he has given an offering of all the money he gained from the sale of his property. But it's dishonest. And Peter, probably in front of everyone, kind of tears him to shreds. <laughs> And in a bizarre turn of events that never really gets specific about the how or the why, Ananias, at the mention of his having been dishonest with God, falls down dead. And they bury him. And three hours later, Savira comes wandering in, and she too is dishonest. Peter continues his angry message to Sapphira, calling her a conspirer. And suddenly she's dead too, and they bury her next to Ananias, and the whole church is afraid, and thus comes an end to a bizarre story that is likely not on the top 10 list of books to read your children at bedtime. And honestly, I would have preferred Luke to leave it out. 
William Barclay says there's no more vivid story than this in the book of Acts, and it is a story which might well have been left out because it shows that even in the early church, that Christians were imperfect, (laughs) which honestly does me a little comfort to know that, that even in the first couple of years, we weren't getting it right, and we are still imperfect. But we do see those imperfections in this story, certainly in the two main characters, but also, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I kind of get mad at Peter in this story. In my second or third reading, I started concentrating on Peter. After all, you know his history. Remember when he promised Jesus the world and then the next thing he knew, he ran and hid? <laughs> of course, he was forgiving, forgiven later, but Peter's denial is a story. Peter's denial of Jesus, the night of his arrest, is a story in not one or two, but all four of the Gospels. <laughs> Some stories are in certain parts of the Gospels. This one's all four. That means everybody knew it. Everybody knew that story. Everybody knew that Peter had promised the world and turned on him the moment it got hard. How on earth can Peter be justifiably angry with this couple? I just don't like it. Of course, I was reminded of this. I was talking to one of our members, Randy Reese, this week. He reminded me that in Peter's denial of Jesus, Peter had never intended to run that maybe he did over-promise. But his running, seem, his denial seems more impulsive. And he's later much, uh, he's later remorseful. But on the other hand, we know of Ananias and Sapphira that their moment of imperfection, it's premeditated. They thought about it. They plotted. Eugene Peterson translates the verse like this. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira conniving together. There was a strategy to their dishonesty, and that was what got them in trouble. Not that they gave a portion, but that they lied about it. And not just in the moment. No, they they had planned to lie about it together. One scholar notes that in the church, it's not sin we need to fear, for God has already dealt with that. It's not wickedness and scandal, for the church has survived that. It's the dishonesty of Ananias, of which we need warning appearing to have an external righteousness that we don't possess internally, which is nothing other than hypocrisy. (laughs) Saying one thing and doing another, acting good on the outside while being conniving on the inside. And I think it comes from a place of wanting all of the honor without any of the sacrifice. And it's this kind of thing that makes this story so important. This story is the first setback in the book of Acts from within. Sure, there's been opposition in the first few chapters. They're getting arrested left and right all the time, but that's from the outside. This is the first instance of an issue, a negative occurrence from within the church. And it turns out that I think probably most setbacks maybe do come from within. And the reason? Dishonesty, hypocrisy, trying to appear to live within the will of God while otherwise maintaining a life according to what I want, to my will. And our main examples are Ananias and Sapphira, two who gave a partial gift to the apostles and then lied about it. But did they really do anything that bad (laughs) to deserve what they got? I don't know, maybe. (laughs) But I feel bad for them. Is it fair to remember them for this? Ananias and Sapphira lived lives. They grew up, they had teenage years, they had friendships, civic duties, family, and in one moment at the beginning of a new movement, they're a little iffy on their generosity, and they're a little dishonest, 
But can you blame them? They want to look good. They don't want others to think poorly of them. Perhaps they started trying to live in two places at once. Maybe, Maybe Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do too much. Maybe they had too much on their plate, trying to be generous and part of a movement of selflessness and sacrifice while maintaining their old life, their old ways, their old desires, their old ways of thinking, trying to prioritize a lot of things at once and some that don't go together. They're in opposition. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, you can't worship two gods at once. You can't love one God because you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. And friends, in the end, I really don't think Ananias and Sapphira are evil or bad people necessarily. I just don't think they had enough room in their hearts for God. In a moment of deep prayer with God, St. Augustine, the 4th and 5th century theologian, asked, is there any room in me for you, Lord God? And friends, I think that's what the problem is with Ananias and Sapphira. Their hearts are so filled with their own will, their own desires, their own wants, and I don't know that they're willing to let go of those things. I think that's what it means to live life with open hands. It's a way of life that acknowledges how easy it is to let things in our hearts and our lives, things that make it harder and harder for God to make a home, to find space in us. And so with open hands, we hold all things loosely. We hold things in a way that we can quickly and calmly let go when God needs a little more space. Actually, I think that's what John Wesley's understanding is of sanctification. It's a gradual decluttering of our hearts in order to make more and more room for God. I think that was a problem for Ananias and Sapphira, and I think it might still be a problem for some of us. (laughs) Simone Weil was a Jewish Christian and a French intellectual who worked on and on farms and in factories, and when Hitler's armies invaded France, she escaped, and she joined the Free French in London. She died at the age of 33 when her tuberculosis was made worse by her refusal to eat more than the rations of her countrymen suffering Nazi occupation. And her legacy was actually left on notes and in journals, all depicting her journey toward God. And Vail wrote this, that there are two great forces in the universe. Gravity, one, and the second, grace. Gravity causes one body to attract other bodies so that it continually enlarges by absorbing more and more of the universe into itself. Something like this same force, she says, operates in human beings. We too want to expand, to acquire, to swell in significance. The desire to be as gods, after all, led Adam and Eve to rebel And it sounds a little bit like Ananias and Sapphira. Simone Weil wrote that we humans operate by laws as fixed as Newton's. All the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception. Most of us remain trapped in the gravitational field of self-love. And thus we fill up all the fissures through which grace might pass. Sometimes, friends, I think that we're too full for God, too full of everything else, too full for grace. We have expanded and acquired and sought significance over all other things, and like gravity, the desires of our hearts, the priorities fill up, and before you know it, God has been squeezed out. 
After all, we cannot serve two gods at once. And yet God still knocks, like that window up there, still knocks at the doors of our hearts asking, is there any room? And the funny thing is, the more we live life with open hands, the more we declutter our hearts, and the more we let God in, the greater our capacity becomes for grace. As God moves into our hearts, our hearts actually expand and grow to allow a greater love to flow outward than we would have known otherwise. Reminds me of a story of a pastor and a father. And he was putting his little girl to bed one evening. He got her in the bed and put their big old white dog, Charlie, next to her. And as he was tucking her in, she started asking questions. I don't know, I hear kids do this a lot, especially at bedtime. The daughter said, Daddy, he said, yes, do you love me? Dad said, of course I do. Daughter said, Daddy, yes, do you love me more than Charlie? Dad said, of course I do, but I also love Charlie. Daughter said, Daddy, yes. Do you love me more than your job at the church? The dad said, of course I love you more than my job at the church. The daughter then paused and asked another question. Daddy, yes. Do you love me more than Jesus? (laughs) And he paused. And then he replied, Honey, if I didn't love Jesus as much as I do, I wouldn't be able to love you the way I do. Douglas Copeland, who coined the term Generation X, concluded in his book, Life After God, he said this, My secret is that I need God. That I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of kindness. I need God to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. If I didn't love Jesus as much as I love him, (laughs) I wouldn't be able to love you the way that I do. May you love that way. (laughs) May you love Jesus with everything you got. May you know grace. May you put away dishonesty and hypocrisy. May you be swayed less and less by the many lords and gods we tend to make for ourselves. May you continually be on a journey of decluttering your life, asking over and over again, God, is there any room? Is there any room in me for you? And may you know that as you live life more and more with open hands, holding the things of this world loosely, God is making a home in your heart. And so my prayer for you today is that that home would grow and grow until the grace of God pours forth because it is just who you are. Let us pray. O great shepherd, we give you thanks for guidance, we give you thanks for mercy, we give you thanks this morning for grace. And we give you thanks for showing us a love beyond all others. Help us, God. Help us to make room in our lives, in our hearts. I know busyness is so popular right now. Busyness 
tends to take over if we let it. And so God, knock on our doors. Help us to declutter. Help us to make room for you. And may we hold everything in this world loosely, knowing that everything is a gift and that we hope to be glad to hand it back to you when we need to. May the home that you make in each of us grow and grow until your grace becomes who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.